What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On this special edition, Remembering 9-11, we take a look at Lebanon, Corruption and a Bomb, a huge report from the New York Times. Dick Casson asks, are today's CCOs, super executives? Dylan Tokar explores whether it's time for a compliance house cleaning in the age of COVID-19. Are we at a turning point for AML enforcement? Jack Hagel explores in the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. Herbalife settles a long-standing FCPA matter. Mike Volkoff takes a deep dive. Does Herbalife portend the end of monitors? The DOJ charges the former Uber CISO for lying about a data breach. And Deutsche Bank is fined yet again. These stories... This week's podcasts and upcoming webinars, all on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. This week in FCPA, episode 221 for the week ending, wait for it, 9-11, but 2020. This is our Remembrance Edition, and uh, on this 19th anniversary of 9-11, we would ask you think about everything that has changed for America and our country since 2001, and I would also ask you to think, uh, I would have been particularly moved today, Jay, with a lot of videos of uh, the time when we were all united as a country. Uh, particularly the one where George Bush pitched the uh, first ball in the first Yankees home game after 9-11. I thought that was very moving. Jay, there was an incredibly detailed and moving report in the New York Times, I think on Wednesday, perhaps Thursday, about the uh, bomb that went off in Beirut Harbor, the or the port of Beirut. And it turns out that the reason the bomb went off was corruption in Beirut. And it really drove home to me the message that corruption directly leads to terrorism. There were, I can't remember how many tons of ammonium nitrate stored there. Uh, it They were stored there because they were taken off a ship that couldn't pay its duties. It was falsely flagged that had a shell company owner. They uh, the, sh- the ship owners walked away. The ship was in such bad shape, it sank in the uh, harbor where it was being birthed. And eventually, uh, corruption at the port uh, prevented anyone from doing anything about it, although there were multiple red flags. There were multiple reports of this ammonium nitrate. And due to the inherent corruption in the system, uh, nothing got done. And I read this um Yesterday, I guess, and reading it on September 10th really drove home to me the the message of of 9/11 and corruption 
leading to terrorism. Uh, I think many people think that uh, 9-11 was one of the precursors to the modern era of FCPA enforcement. Uh, I certainly think that, and that uh, we had an explosion of FCPA enforcement within a couple of years from 9-11, and that continued uh, obviously right up until this day where we've had the, the largest anti-corruption, international anti-corruption settlement in the history of the world ever uh, this year, as well as the largest FCPA anti-corruption settlement. So um, it was a story that I think needs uh, to be told, and I think every compliance professional needs to read it, Jay, because uh, I think that every compliance professional is on the front lines of the fight against terrorism. Obviously, the DOJ is out there prosecuting companies, but every time you uh, interview a third party, every time you review a due diligence report, every time you look at a gift travel and entertainment expense, every time you look at an interaction with a foreign official, I think you are uh, helping in the fight against corruption and, at the end of the day, terrorism. So I just, once again, would like everyone to think about what this day is, what it means, and and as we move towards next year with the 20th anniversary, uh, how important and uh, significant that day was in all of our lives. Definitely. Uh, next up, Dick Casson, founder of the FCPA blog, asks, are today's chief compliance officers super execs? And um, the DOJ released the first version of its evaluation of corporate compliance programs in 2019. That document and its update this year in 2020 completed the chief compliance officer's amazing transformation from a part-time generalist to today's highly specialized super executive. Dick Casson asks, how does it happen and why? The U.S. Sentencing Commission arguably created the modern compliance function with the 1991 release of the organizational guidelines. 28 years later, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs paid homage to the organizational guidelines, but the DOJ's document personalized compliance in the new way that started, as Tom just said, after 9-11, with its elevating the CCO to a special level within the C-suite. The organizational guidelines famously set out elements of an effective compliance program. One of those elements required companies to place responsibility for the compliance function on a high-level personnel uh, personnel of the organization. Responsibility for the compliance function was purposely or ended up being left vague. It could fall somewhere randomly among any of several layers of government and management, from a board member to anyone already in management. In other words, the compliance function, as the organizational guidelines conceived it, was a part-time role added on to somebody's existing full-time job. Change came after September 11, 2001, and in that decade that followed, the federal government came to see graft as a national and global threat. Attorney General Eric Holder said in 2012, as we've learned, corruption is often a gateway crime, one that allows money laundering, gang violence, terrorism, and other crimes. Holder's words were an early signal that combating corruption had become too important to be left with a random high-level corporate personnel. In 2014, SEC Chair Mary Jo White picked up the theme. She talked about corporate gatekeepers, auditors, lawyers, and others who have professional obligations to spot and prevent potential misconduct. Then SEC Enforcement Chief Andrew Ceresny went further. He put spotlight on compliance officers. In 2015, he said the SEC would make some corporate compliance charging decisions after asking, 
Are compliance personnel included in critical meetings? Are their views typically sought and followed? And do compliance officers report to the CEO and have any visibility with the board? Finally, in 2019, the DOJ released the first version of its evaluation for corporate compliance programs. That 20-page document in, in its recent update isn't law. It's internal guidance for DOJ professionals, but made very public. Very likely, few board members will ever take the time to read the document, but we can assure you that every lawyer and risk management professional advising the board of a global company will read it and study it and craft advice based on it. So what does the DOJ want to know? They want to know, does the compliance function compare with other strategic functions in the company in terms of stature, compensation, reporting line, and resources, and decision makers? What has been the turnover rate for compliance and relevant corporate control personnel? Has the company responded to specific instances where compliance raised concerns? And have there been transactions or deals that were stopped, modified, or further scrutinized as a result of compliance? Beyond that, the DOJ said prosecutors should also ask whether compliance personnel are well-qualified, adequately funded, autonomous from the rest of management, and directly reporting to the board. The DOJ has confirmed a special status on the compliance function and compliance personnel by asking those questions and giving company credits for the right answers. That special status and, above all, being autonomous from the rest of management has completed the transformation of CCO and today's super executive. Uh, Jay, next up we had, I thought, a really interesting article and, frankly, quite timely article from Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And he reported on a recent uh, virtual conference where the topic was not doing more with less, but actually using the pandemic as an opportunity to clean up your compliance house. And by that, I mean um, it's an opportunity to scrutinize your due diligence process, your risk assessment, and other routine tasks um, as uh, companies, particularly their compliance departments, are strapped for cash and perhaps even headcount. It could be time for an internal cleanup. So if you have um, <clears throat> for instance, on third parties, say you have a, a hundred agents, you don't even use 25 of those. Well, you're wasting resources, just performing due diligence on them. Why not just cut them loose? Um, put them in some, uh, if, even if you have a contract with them, put them in a file for, for non-use, something like that. Um, when you have to cut costs, the question should be, do you need this? The exercise can go to lots of other expenditures uh, or or things that um, could be used to fund bribes. Obviously, um, gifts, travel, and entertainment have been on the forefront of everyone's mind, particularly after the Herbalife settlement. But right now, that may not be your top risk. And so is that something that you can um, take a look at? Uh, Meals budget, gifts budget, all of those things. So I thought it was a really timely uh, article and Catherine Rosano, um, uh, the chief compliance officer at Panasonic Avionics, said her company is not putting risk assessments to the side. It's just doing it in a more targeted and thoughtful and proactive way. And that may actually tie in, Jay, to what the Department of Justice suggested in the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. So I urge everyone to take a look at this article because it may give you some ideas. You're going to have to cut something. So why not cut things 
that either you don't need or even better that you're not using? So uh, double dipping back into the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance, we've got an article from Jack Hagel asking that, are we at a turning point in anti-money laundering enforcement? Uh, Treasury and Delaware signed pact to boost sanctions enforcement. A new agreement between the U.S. Treasury Department and officials in Delaware could lead to more aggressive enforcement of economic sanctions on non-financial companies, particularly those that may seek to hide transactions behind anonymous entities. The Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, which enforces U.S. sanctions, and the Delaware Department of Justice signed a Memorandum of Understanding Wednesday to encourage information sharing and coordination on investigations. The agreement is intended to improve transparency in corporate structures that may be used to obscure illicit businesses and to prevent the use of U.S. companies by blacklisted individuals or entities, the Treasury Department said. Enhanced collaboration with the Delaware Department of Justice will help OFAC to enforce its sanctions programs by more quickly identifying parties with an interest in a blocked property. Delaware's corporate formation requirements have historically allowed for a degree of anonymity, which can limit the ability of authorities to quickly collect beneficial ownership information. That can be attractive to blacklisted parties that may try to use anonymous entities as vehicles for illicit finance or sanction evasion. Authorities in Delaware have such significant access to information about companies that are formed in Delaware, which can sometimes be difficult for OFAC to get. The access could also help OFAC cross-reference information with other investigators, including those in the U.S. intelligence community. Delaware in 2019 introduced requirements that new business entities formed in the state be screened against U.S. sanctions. Delaware's 2019 decision to revoke certificates of registration for OFAC-designated Delaware entities identified as blocked property prompted OFAC and the Delaware Department of Justice to identify the most effective means to coordinate on disposition of blocked property. OFAC, which as long as focused on financial institutions' efforts to avoid transactions with blacklisted individuals and entities, has similar cooperations agreement with financial regulators. One of the more prominent agreements is with financial regulators in New York, where many financial institutions are based. OFAC has increased its sanctions compliance program for non-financial companies in recent years, and in this regard, New York and Delaware are similar. Where New York is the home of large financial institutions, Delaware is the home of equally large, if not larger, number of incorporated entities. That this agreement spells out roles for OFAC in Delaware in investigations and enforcement actions indicates that the state, which hasn't historically played a large role in sanctions enforcement, could begin to do so. Uh, Jay, we had a major FCPA settlement uh, happen uh, involving Herbalife, and uh, this case, we'd been treated to some of the facts um, in some prior uh, indictments of individuals, but I must say that having read everything now, uh, Herbalife was uh, clearly uh, this um, fraud and corruption went all the way up to the top. It was people not only putting their heads in the sands, in the sand as an ostrich, but it was putting their head in the sand af- as an ostrich after being told, hey, there's a problem in China. So um, um, really, really bad facts. Uh, 
Herbalife uh, direct sales model in China. So similar to Avon, they had to get a ton of licenses. They had an entire business unit bent around paying off Chinese regulators. Uh, Mike Volkoff took a three-part dive into it. And uh, I'm just going to talk about what he looked at, what he came up with is some of the top <clears throat> lessons learned. Uh, we had a board and internal audit failure. Uh, despite questions from two board members and reviewing internal audit reports about the obvious fraud, um, nothing went forward. Chinese gift-giving culture, and it goes without saying that China's been the largest single country around FCPA enforcement over the past 20 years. Uh, gifts, meals, and entertainment. Uh, we had uh, meals charges coming in at three and 400 per person, thousands of dollars on uh, lavish gifts that were clearly outside the norm. And then uh, finally, uh, un- almost unbelievably, the company did not have a CCO, but it really had no audit or compliance oversight. So it was really designed to be as lackadaisical as possible. Whether that design was in- intentional to uh, violate the law or not, it's unknown. Obviously, they got a DPA, so they didn't get a criminal um, uh, complaint against them. Uh, the SEC is, or rather, their criminal complaints against the former China business unit execs, where those go, who knows at this point. Um, it, it's a great lesson. It provides lots of lessons for the compliance practitioner uh, in the various settlement documents, DPA, information, and SEC cease and desist order. So I would encourage uh, everyone to take a look at it. And as a little hint preview, uh, I'm going to be taking a deep dive into it next week on a blog post series, Jay. The Herbalife, uh, I guess, enforcement begs the question that does Herbalife portend the end of monitors? Robert Anello takes a look in Forbes, and his uh, piece is entitled, Who Watches the Store? Dractus, Drastic Decline of Corporate Monitors Under Trump. The recent settlement by Herbalife with Securities and Exchange Commission, the U.S. Department of Justice, and the U.S. Attorney Office for the Southern District of New York, totaling over $123 million, is the latest in a string of enforcement actions under the Trump administration that identified violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. But it did not impose an independent corporate monitor. The decision not to impose one here was said to be due in part of the company's cooperation and remedial efforts by the time of resolution. Even if the company's cooperation and remedial efforts contribute to the government's decision not to insist on a monitor, that decision likely was also part of the concerted effort by the current administration to sideline the use of monitorships generally. The DOJ, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and Southern District of New York, along with the SEC, released strong statements condemning Herbalife's actions. Acting Assistant Attorney General Brian Rabbit said, Herbalife misrepresented important information made available to investors and tried to conceal its widespread and corruption scheme. Acting U.S. Attorney Audrey Strauss of the SDNY called the scheme widespread and extensive, and Senior Associate Director of the SEC New York Regional Office, Sanjay Wadhawa, said that Herbalife's inadequate internal accounting controls allowed an environment of corruption to exist and its Chinese subsidiaries for more than a decade. Under recent prior administrations, these facts may well have led to the imposition of an independent monitor. 
On March 7, 2008, the Bush administration issued the Morford Memo, which established the guidelines used for 10 years on how federal prosecutors should select and implement corporate monitors. In Herbalife, however, acting on the directives of the current administration, an independent corporate monitor was found to be unnecessary. Herbalife hardly stands alone in its ability to resolve its recent case without the government imposing a monitor. As previously observed by the Forbes blog in 2018, the Trump administration diminished the Justice Department's intrusion into the corporate sector. Sector. DOJ's approach to reduce the imposition of a high cost of a monitor in some cases should be embraced as a positive aspect of the DOJ's new approach to corporate misconduct. Now, however, the results of the current administration actions are more than apparent. The 2017 elimination of the Obama administration's compliance counsel, Wei Chen, the so-called monitoring czar, in hindsight was only the tip of the iceberg. Between 2016 and the middle of 2018, out of a total 64 non-prosecution or deferred prosecution agreements, only 26, a hair more than a quarter of those agreements, imposed a compliance monitor. By the end of 2018, that number had fallen to 23%. And in 2019, only five independent monitors out of 31 DPAs or NPAs entered into by Trump's DOJ, a mere 16%. In 2020, zero have been imposed out of at least 18 resolutions. So some have asked, without an independent monitor, who watches the store once a company has been found to have permitted wide-scale criminal conduct? Even a company that's under a DPA or an MPA will have no one to confirm that its remedial efforts succeeded except its own executives, which could easily lead to concerted disregard for those remedial efforts and the pursuit of shareholder profits. Before the most recent administration came to power, the rising cost of monitorships placed a heavy burden on corporations and shareholders. The decision by the Trump administration to abandon monitorships in favor of self-regulation may prove, however, too laissez-faire. Some monitors were able to create tangible benefits, including changing the compliance culture of their charges. Without monitors, the future could include an increased amount of corporate recidivism or internally created compliance programs that have power on paper to satisfy an agreement with the government, but no power to change. In the absence of adequate regulatory oversight, some states may believe that it has fallen to them to step boldly into the void left by the federal government. The New York Department of Financial Services has continued to engage independent compliance monitors to perform comprehensive reviews of compliance programs. So it looks like uh, we've seen a rise of the old paper program over the last four years, and it seems to be going in the wrong direction. Uber ended up paying a $100,000 extortion payment, which they categorize as a bug bounty under an NDA to some unknown hackers. And um, that information, Mr. Sullivan did not uh, communicate to the FTC, and he actively prevented them from getting information about it. Uh, This is a pretty clear statement from the government that uh, companies need to stand up and take notice, do not help criminal hackers cover their tracks, and don't make the problems worse for your customers, don't cover up criminal attempts to steal people's personal data, and that um, it uh, the DOJ and 
uh, FTC will take a very dim view of it. So wrapping up our articles for the week, uh, wouldn't be a week in FCPA without seeing what Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, is thinking about on radical compliance. And today he's looking, or this week he looked at Deutsche Bank dinged on two sanction cases. Uh, here's some red meat for all you sanction compliance nerds out there. A Deutsche Bank subsidiary has agreed to pay 583000 for two separate sanction violations. One involved compliance employees improperly configuring a sanction screening tool, and the other senior business compliance managers rushing a transaction without appropriate due diligence. The Office of Foreign Assets Control announced the settlement on Wednesday. The subsidiary in question is Deutsche Bank Trust Company Americas, which is headquartered in New York and provides all usual banking service one would expect from a global bank. The sanctioned blunders happened in 2015, and as usual, they provide interesting lessons for the rest of the compliance community. The more notable infraction happened in December 2015, when Deutsche Bank processed 61 transactions that sent a total of 276000 to a Russian firm called Cray Invest Bank. The bank had been on OFAC's list of sanctioned entities since 2015 in retaliations for Russians' invasion of the Crimea the year before. What happened exactly? As described by the OFAC settlement order, when Deutsche Bank employees were adding Cray's bank to their sanctions screening tool, they forgot to include the SWIFT business identifier code. Another issue at the time of those 61 transgressions, Deutsche Bank's screening tool was configured that only a payment to an exact SDN list match would trigger manual review. So even through all 61 tra- transactions included Crane's Vestbank SWIFT code and a nearly identical match with the bank's name and address, the majority of the payments sailed right through. The second sanction included an apparent violation that happened in August of 2015 when Deutsche Bank processed $2.8 million of a transfer related to a bundle of fuel purchases. One of the parties involved in the purchase was IPP Oil Products, a Cyprus-based business also on OFAC sanctions list. Despite verbal assurance made to Deutsche Bank that IPP's title to the fuel oil had transferred prior to its designation, OFAC had determined that IPP nonetheless had an interest in the transaction. All right, so clients lying to banks about what's really going on is nothing new, but then that's the whole point of due diligence, isn't it? Uh, Ouch. Once again, we have to rush a complete lucrative transaction rather than prudence to take necessary time to perform due diligence. So in two uh, isolated incidences here, uh, Deutsche Bank uh, once again uh, dropped the ball on rushing to get profits and failing to do due diligence. And uh, as we know, Matt is the king of memes, and he's got a, a picture here from uh, Office Space that uh, the manager is saying, hey, if you could have the screening tool approve everything, yeah, that would be great. So uh, once again, Matt casts his light on uh situations that could be handled better in the world of FCPA and um, sanctions. So, Jay, we have a new month, a new guest on The Compliance Life. And this month, I'm extraordinarily pleased to welcome Deanna Wonkwo uh, as she tells her journey to the 
CCO chair. Um, she had a great opening line, Jay. She said that uh, my story is the same as everyone else's because it's so different. And, and she was absolutely spot on. And this is how it's different. She started out in QAQC at NASA. Uh, and she's the only chief compliance officer I know of who started out in QAQC at NASA. So she had a really interesting journey. Um, basically was told one day, congratulations, you're the CCO. Sorry, you're the CCO uh, at her at core laboratory. So check out part one where she tells the story. She's a wonderful lady, and uh, it's a great story. Obviously, a very different perspective from mine is a legal perspective, and probably from yours, Jay, from uh, you and Donald Trump's university, Wharton, um, where they do or don't release transcripts. I can't remember. Uh, nevertheless, um, an educational background that is very different than what we had. And uh, so check out uh, her story uh, comes out every Tuesday this month. This month on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, we switched over to internal controls. And Tuesday, it was assessing internal controls and international operations. Wednesday, risk assessments and internal controls. Uh, Thursday was mapping internal controls. Today, it's implementing internal controls. Once again, uh, this month is sponsored by uh, Affiliated Monitors. So thank you, Jay, and your team for that. Jay, uh, if you've been on social media at all this week, you have seen the social media blitz about Converge 20. I happen to be a privilege to be a part of that. I also have a series of podcasts about speakers for Converge 20. Um, there's over 1,100 attendees registered now. Uh, once again, the price you cannot beat is free. So if you have no compliance, training, education budget, this is the event for you. And if I can end with a couple of great K2 intelligence fins. In the month of September, uh, I, I guess the one thing I can say is that my colleague, uh, Eric Feldman, will be speaking at the upcoming uh, SCCE CEI conference on Wednesday. And uh, besides that, um, looking forward to uh, getting in touch with uh, folks who I haven't, been, haven't seen in the past year or so. Um, it's, you know, tough to do these virtually. But um, it, it's a good way to get back in touch with folks. Um, so on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to invite, uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 221, for the week ending September 11th, 2020, the Remembrance Edition. Um, I would just heartily like to echo Tom's sentiments as we started off this podcast uh, it's a very solemn day, and uh, I, too, support what Tom says that I'd like to think back when we were united as a country, and I know we can be so again. So uh, have a good weekend, be safe, be healthy, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, Tom Fox, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. We've also got a new really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message if you like to ask us a question or have a topic you would like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.